Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I am your host, Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, I have a very special guest joining me, world-renowned back expert, Dr. Stuart McGill. He's a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo, where he spent 40 years leading a lab and a research clinic to understand back pain. He has published over 245 peer-reviewed scientific papers and several textbooks. Now he continues as a chief scientific officer at BackFit Pro, where he assesses difficult back pain cases from around the world. In this episode, we discuss the validity of non-specific low back pain, the implications of using this label in our practices, and the intersection of a biomechanical approach with a biopsychosocial approach. This is part one of my two-part interview with Dr. McGill. Enjoy. Hi, Dr. McGill. How are you doing? Hi, Tiffany. I'm doing fabulously well. Uh, And uh, I see you're a a student at my alma mater, and uh, I'm wondering how you're doing. I'm doing great as well. Thank you so much for asking. And great to hear that you're doing fabulous. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking your time to speak with our audience. And I'm sure this will be an insightful and stimulating podcast to all of you that are listening. Dr. Sir McGill, you're one of the very few that really masters the art and science of treating low back pain. Can you tell us how do you get here and what are you doing today? This is not a good, inspiring story, I don't think, because I'm very much an accidental clinician. I had no vision or path when I was at your stage in in my career at University of Toronto. Um, But I became a, a professor after doing a PhD in spine biomechanics. And I only had one question, and that was, how does the spine work? It was a simple curiosity-driven program like that. And clinicians, different groups, orthopedic groups, neurology groups, et cetera, would ask me to come and give a talk and update them on some of our findings. And then they would say, you know, what you just showed could help with a difficult case we're dealing with. Would you come and see that patient with us? And I said, oh, I'm not a clinician. But I did, and I learned, I saw the whole milieu from a very different lens, and that was the start of it. And slowly over time, uh, they started to send me their difficult uh, cases, and I turned into this uh, clinician uh, uh, while still remaining primarily a, uh, a scientist. I see. So you started to build up your caseload oh, just over the years with clinicians reaching out to you for questions. Yes. Uh, now, going back to that idea, how does the spine work? Um, I would be asked by medical schools, come in and see three patients in front of all of our staff on the on the stage at the auditorium. And I would do that. And they'd say, well, we don't uh, think like that uh, at all. Uh, and I would listen to their questions. What are the impediments to them 
really executing well what they were trying to achieve with their patients. And uh, if I said, well, I I don't know the answer to that right now, that became my next research question. So my interactions with the clinical world throughout my career was invaluable in helping shape our our research. So it was a a wonderful uh, relationship. That is really amazing to hear because oftentimes we talk about the gap between research and practice and how do we merge that gap and just based on what you just said, having both, having experience in both worlds really uh, inform your research and your research informing your practice and, and that's just really, really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it gave me something to talk about when we met the next time. <laughs> So your your practice is very evidence-based, and you previously talked about six pillars of evidence that you established in your lab. Can you briefly describe that, and how do you incorporate those into your clinical approach? Yes. Well, uh, our scientific program uh, began with my PhD, and from that, I can tell you how we designed what we call the six pillars of uh, evidence. My PhD... Uh, created a very anatomically detailed biofidelic model of the spine. We would take a person, we would take their MRs or CT slices, build up their spine in 3D in the computer. So we had a virtual representation of their anatomy. And then as they moved, we would measure the three-dimensional motion of their spine. And then as they activated their muscles, we would use EMG to sense that, uh, convert that to force, apply them to their skeleton, create stress maps and measure stability and these sorts of things. It was very sensitive to the individual ways that that person chose to move or lift or walk or swing a golf club or whatever it happened to be. And we saw that where the stress concentrations were turned out to be where the pain was quite often. So that became our first uh, pillar. Our uh, second pillar, I realized I didn't really understand what was happening at the spine. So we started a cadaver lab, very different technology. We had occasional human specimens, but they're very rare. And we mostly used animal models, but we would load the spines with specific loading scenarios and we would create clusters of very specific things. Uh, How do you fracture an end plate? What types of spines and discs fracture before the disc herniates in a loaded flexion cycle? What happens with extension and rotation? So we were able to map uh, very specific injuries with very specific scenarios. Well, then I realized I have to understand what we're seeing as the process is taking place. I needed a radiology suite. So we had micro CT, ultrasound, x-ray, and I would uh, collaborate with my radiology colleagues to get access to MRs and whatnot. And we would now put together those first three pillars so that when we saw an end plate fracture on the periphery of uh, an individual, we knew what the loading scenario was that in greatest likelihood would have uh, created that. So that was the third pillar, the radiology. As we began to work with more groups of people, I'd be consulting with the military and the police and the firefighters uh, and different sporting teams and organizations. 
there was a clustering of injuries around specific sports and specific exposures that became our epidemiology pillar. So we would put not specifically cause and effect, although we did do some longitudinal uh, work. Uh, one of the award-winning papers following the emergency task force of the Toronto Police Force for five years and saw who became back injured and who didn't and what were their distinguishing features. But uh, we then uh, had two more pillars. As I said, uh, I began, I was asked by the dean, would I start an experimental back pain research clinic at the university? And it was a very unique clinic. We followed up with every patient we ever saw. So it would allow us to cluster them into subgroups. And uh, it would allow us to test different ideas uh, from the other pillars see what was effective at, and what wasn't. And then the final pillar was we then began to run clinical trials with military, uh, different sporting groups, uh, et cetera, to see if these were effective uh, in reducing claims in a fire department for back injury, for example, or injury rates in professional basketball or uh, whatever the sport happened to be. So in summary, we were looking for a concordance and an agreement from those six pillars to converge on what we ended up uh, coming to, which was there's no such thing as nonspecific back pain. It's all very specific. And uh, there you go. Right, <laughs> Sorry right. for the long story, but wow. that was uh, that took me 40 years. <laughs> I can I believe that. And from what I'm hearing from the modeling of the spine into discovering patterns that causes injury into seeing if that is really happening in the cases of different populations using your epidemiology and then testing your approaches to treating. It's really, there's a flow of thought and all of this is based on what you've known about the spine. Is that correct? Well, sure. That's exactly it in a nutshell. It's the way my brain thinks. Yeah. So you touched on there is no such thing as nonspecific low back pain. And I imagine this would come as a surprise to many clinicians. And aren't 90% of the back pain we see nonspecific? So I wonder if you can explain a little bit more the rationale behind such a claim. Well, I would say the opposite, that most of the patients that come to see me are very specific. I'm going to start with a premise, and then I'm going to give some impediments to this notion of specific and nonspecific pain. And then I want to give you some case studies if, if I can't, and we'll work through those to, to try and prove my vantage point and, and perspective a little bit. So let's start with the premise. This is important. The pain is what the person says it is. So when I listen to a person, I'm interpreting their pain as they describe it. Then we chase it down. So that's the beginning. If you recall Jeff Maitland, he was a, 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 a leading physical therapist from Australia, and his approach is very similar to our even we arrived at them from, from with great independence. And it begins like this. You meet a patient. When they come to my home here now in Gravenhurst, I look out one of the bedroom windows and I watch them get out of the car 
and I watch them walk up, the assessment has started. <laughs> watch how they take their shoes off, um, getting their movement habits, etc. So then they sit down and we sit down in front of the fireplace for a reason. And I listen to them and I simply say, tell me your story and how can I help? At that time, I'm using pattern recognition skills, uh, features of differential diagnosis that have taken us decades to put together. And then we create some hypotheses, some specific hypotheses. A hypothesis is a bet. I will bet that this is the pathway to your pain. And then we go downstairs to the clinical uh, exam uh, room and we test those hypotheses or bets in the physical exam, provocation testing, etc. Then I test, is there any possible explanation that's alternate? Something that I haven't thought of. Let's knock those down and get them out of and then I try an antidote. So if their pain is is caused by extension and right lateral bend, and they are a professional golfer, and I'm thinking of the case that I saw last week here, actually. And then when we measure when they swing the club and drive the ball uh well over 300 yards, they laterally crunch their spine into a hundred percent of its uh range of motion with great violence. Uh then I try the antidote. Let's try swinging the club to 95% of that. Oh, no pain. Okay. Now, uh, can we create uh, an antidote? And then I might, but not always, look at their imaging, whether it's MRI or SPECT scan, which images uh, metabolism and quite often associated with inflammation and whatnot. Um, I uh, then consider their behavior, their training programs, and we will see if we can converge on a specific understanding, recognizing that there might be even more than one pathway. There might be several uh, involved here, but we, we try and uh, unravel them. I will all say that I only see, and I don't like calling them patients. I call them clients. I don't want to even put the idea that, well, they're suffering patient, but nonetheless, they're referred by their clinicians. I invite their clinician to come to the assessment. That is a game changer. Sometimes it's their physical therapist or their chiropractor, but if they're a pro athlete, some of them come with the entire medical staff. They're that marquee a player. Or I might see a VIP who has a personal physician. They run a country. <laughs> they have a full medical attending just to them and they all come. And it's so interesting at the end of the exam, the team usually says, we've never seen anything like this before. This was a real education in the art and science on the converging. And by the way, I've documented this in my textbook, Low Back Disorders. But I also suggest for someone like yourself to shortcut the 40 years that I spent doing this, go read uh, Maitland. Go read Dave McGee's book on orthopedic assessment on all sorts of tests that allow you to converge on, on uh, specific uh, pain. Uh, have you heard of Michael Shacklock and dynamics? Oh, you must know this. Uh, how the, you, you can move the 
nervous system and find out pain. So that now I'm going to change the discussion a little bit. Bill Morgan's book, Clinical MRI of the Spine, and I've known Bill for a few decades. And it's a wonderful on how the features correlate with certain uh, exposures to, to physical things. Um, Kirkaldi Willis's book, Managing Low Back Pain, it was the first book that described the cascade. First, you get an end plate fracture from a heavy deadlift. And then the person, the collagen loosens up a little bit with through the disc uh, height. The ground substance becomes softer, and then they get a disc bulge. Then they get arthritis in the facet joints a couple of years later. And then they get true joint instability, micro movements triggering pain when they roll over in bed they get pains. But after eight or nine, 10 years, it's all gone. The pain is burned out. So to understand that cascade and where your client is in that cascade is very important. So that's an overview. Can I go on to a couple of system impediments as I, I see it to yeah, non-specific low back pain? I think there are some legislative pressures that are a disincentive for therapists in particular for putting all of this effort into creating specific diagnoses because legislation says you're not allowed to give a diagnosis of a person's pain. That's for the physician. So could this be leading as an impediment? The next impediment are financial pressures. Therapists bill for a codable procedure and they get reimbursed by that. Is there a code for a thorough assess, uh, assessment of low back pain? No. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you can't bill for it. Uh, all of our physical therapists bill for their time. So they're not held down by not being able to, to get reimbursed for, it's a big effort, as you know, to, to do these kinds of assessments. Um, my, my, my next thought is why must we keep striving for this specific back pain uh, goal. The first one is to interpret science and to conduct ends. In order for a group of individuals to be tested in a statistical approach, you must have homogeneity of groups. So if you have nonspecific anything, a nonspecific treatment for a nonspecific entity always results in everything works or nothing works. There's, But to be valid statistically, you need somewhat of a clustering to create uh, that uh, homogeneity. And, and we've seen this with, you know, if, if you look at, ask the question, does posture matter? and you get a group of nonspecific back pain, you will conclude that posture doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. if you then look at the studies or conduct them yourselves, if a person is extension intolerant and then they move into extension and it triggers their pain, you see all of a sudden that is now a statistical associate. So you needed some uh, subgrouping to even allow that. But the second one is, is much more from a humanistic point of view. As you know, people are tortured with their back pain to the point of getting PTSD, but it's them not knowing the mechanism. When does this next bogeyman come and slam me? When does someone stick a knife in my back? And it's they're craving to have an explanation, and it's so liberating if you can give it to them. And then the second bit is then give them a strategy for that very specific pathway. They become empowered. 
and the psychological PTSD unwinds itself. So it's a fusion of mechanics and, and psychology, of course. Um, so th th that's a, a few background political and, and scientific and sociological perspectives, I suppose. But can I give some really colorful case studies? Oh, and yeah. I'm, 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 I'm going to ask you some questions now. So listen to the features. I'm going to give you two patients, and I'm being a professor, and I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be pedantic here, but you're the student for a moment now. So I'm okay. going to give you, let, let's assume you've got two patients. One reports sitting in front of a computer for 20 minutes creates their low back pain. They are you. So what are you, in your 20s? Okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, and it's you. And uh, sitting for 20 minutes, I hope you're doing differential diagnosis now and pattern recognition, creates low back pain and causes the small toes, not the big toe, the small toes on their right foot to go numb. Standing up, going for a walk, takes all the symptoms and away. That's person number one. Person number two is me, <laughs> an old man. <laughs> that should tell you something different now. Now they show the opposite. Sitting takes all the pain away and going for a walk causes bilateral low back pain and numbness in the soles of their feet. Two different patterns. Is their pain nonspecific? There's a pattern that you can tell, for example, if sitting, which is a flexion activity, prolonged flexion activity causes numbing in the small toe, you can suspect somewhat of a for example, neurological pathology there, and also it's caused by flexion activity, whereas in your case, an old man walking, there could be, for example, facet joints together, jamming together or uh, repeated movements in the spine that causes the pain. Okay, well, you, you, you've now created some hypotheses, uh, but I gave you a lot more. I said the pain is in the small toes of their right foot. Isn't that the fourth sciatic root? Mm -hmm. Very precisely. Yeah. So go see what's going on at the fourth sciatic root. Play jazz with it. Friction it. Pull it back and forth. Now, if you knew neurodynamics from Mike Shacklock, you'd know exactly how to test whether that is the feature that is uh, linked very specifically to that pain. Then, then uh, again, if it's you, the chance is great that it's a disc bulge. If sitting causes it and walking takes it away, chances are it has an open fissure through the annulus. That's another bet to make. Go test it. Repeat it. Decompress the disc. Uh, a McKenzie extension, for example, uh, might be. Uh, uh, so my point is, uh, it's it, it's already headed greatly towards specificity. Now I'm going to ask you, does a similar generic therapeutic approach work for both of those people? Would you give the same exercise to both of those groups? One's yeah. a stenotic old man like me, and the other is a very active disc bulge like you. Of course you wouldn't. So already you've determined what, and made a bet, and now you're going to test it as to what is effective and what is a poison. In fact, is there any such thing as radiating back pain that is nonspecific. You know, you start following down the, the nerve roots, play jazz with them, and uh, it, 
Now you find, is the nerve frictioned or is it compressed and not moving? Is it overhooked or is it underhooked by whatever the thing is affecting it? Um, can you change symptoms by working on a disc? Or well, my, my point is, uh, a skilled clinician will converge on a precise understanding of that uh, pain mechanism. Um, so let's go back to two old men now. I'm I'm going to take the example uh, to another level. So we've got two old people like me, and walking hurts both our backs. But then you've said, well, okay, you're, you're a stenotic old man. I'm going to try a little bit of a pelvic tilt on you, knowing that you open up the lateral foramen and then uh, go for a walk. And, and that old man says, you know, that helped me. You do the same thing on the next old man. He says, oh, no, 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 this hurts. So then you might do some thoracic extension, do a little prone tummy lay before they start their walk. And then all of a sudden you've opened the door and they can walk with no symptoms you see that it's a different exercise for mm -hmm. the same initial symptom, but your experimentation on converging in the assessment took you to uh, some precision. Now you're going to increase the time that they can walk, do a park bench decompression, do uh, uh, swinging the arms about the shoulders, not the elbows, because we know that adds more flossing of the nerve roots by a centimeter or so at the foramen at L4. So, uh, you know, I could go on and on uh, about that, but my point is the subclassification groups now comes down to a subject N of one. And mm -hmm. that's where we have to get to with individuals, even those groups of old men like me who uh, where walking might uh, increase their pain. Take five of them, the dosage of the exercise, the little hacks that you can create proof uh, to get that person on their way. They were all different. They were subject down of one in their uh, subgroup. So you may I have one, uh, a couple more very colorful Sure. studies they get more interesting i was i was giving a, a a group uh of clinicians and their patients a little bit of a a lecture this was in another country i noticed this fellow sitting on the side in the position that a cycle a clinical psychology textbook would say that's the posture of clinical depression knees together hands folded in their lap slumped into full flexion like this a very guarded you know, uh, posture. And then at, in question period, that fellow asked me a question and he said, clearly in distress, um, I used to be a police officer. The emotion was incredible in his voice. He said, I saw experts. He said, I've never been assessed like what you've uh, described here. I was only given nonspecific interventions, but the pain didn't go away. I saw physical therapists and chiropractors. They finally ended up giving me a booklet. And the booklet was how to live with your pain. And he said, I quit my job as a policeman. I've been on depression, medication. My life is hell. And I said, sir, could you go and sit down over there? And I said, can I ask you to spread your knees apart, suck up some air, lift your chest, move forward through your hips, pull your hips through and stand up. Now I want you to play, you, you know, a baseball player, the shortstop position where you put your 
uh, make a V with your thumb and your fingers and you slide your hands down your thighs. Then I show him how to change his spine posture, flex his spine like a camel, hollow his spine by lifting his tail. And I said, does that change your symptoms at all? He goes, yes, it does. And then I said, now to stand up, don't use your back, carry more weight down your arms, become a leaning tower, show me your triceps, carry more weight down your arms. Now pull your hips through. And he stood up and I said, did that cause your pain? He says, no, it's gone. And he was just becoming more emotional by the minute. Anyway, he ended up working with one of our master clinicians in that country. Took his pain away. He ended up taking ballroom dance. He never did get back to policing, but he became so angry with the medical system in his country that really had done this to him. They couldn't find his pain, so they defaulted to this explanation that you're magnifying your pain. There's no organic cause. Clearly, there was an organic cause all the time. Um, now, I'm going to ask you a question. Was that a biomechanical or a cognitive behavioral therapeutic intervention? You can't clearly categorize into one or the other because clearly what you've done with him modifying symptoms and showing that there is a way to be empowered over your pain causes what we wanted for the biopsychosocial approach to do, which is to sort of live with it. But uh, Don't you think our approach was all of the above? Yeah. It was a little mechanical. We had, we, we, we did play we we did do behavioral therapy through pattern changing and and uh but it was strategic to remove the stress off of what was keeping him chronic but you know well it was it was a bit of an indictment in that no one had ever touched him no one had ever assessed him in the way that we had they had no chance to understand so you know i i hear some people say well there's no organic cause to the pain would find it. Well, no, you can't find it on an MRI. Um, so uh, let, let, let me go to a final uh, example of converging on a precise diagnosis. And you will see it is a full biopsychosocial uh, uh, approach. Um, there was a group of whiplash patients here in Ontario who were dismissed by the system the uh, medical community said, we can't see any evidence of tissue disruption in the MRI. It's gone on longer than 12 weeks. Therefore, you are a malingerer. You've got central sensitization. Your, ba your, your brain is remembering older pain patterns, uh, et cetera. You know the story. We uh, and by the way, they were, they, they were dismissed in terms of compensation uh, etc. We took that group and I uh, collaborated with a colleague who does video fluoroscopy, real-time moving x-ray of a spine moving. So we would watch their necks as they rotated through the range of motion. In every single case, those who had lingering pain had true joint instability. That is aberrant micro movements in a shear mode. It would happen as a clunk. So they would start in full extension, rotate through, and somewhere there would be a shift in translatory motion, a true instability, and then the rotation would pick up again. So 
to quantify it and measure it, we would graph the rotation of one cervical segment relative to the next, and then we would graph translation. The instability occurred where the translation suddenly jumped up and the rotation stopped for an instant, and then the rotation picked up. So that was the quantification of it. In every case, it was at that instant they reported a shot of pain, a movement catch, and that was the familiar whiplash symptom. So do you see how we had to dig a little bit deeper and it wasn't pain magnification? That type of instability doesn't magically heal in 12 weeks and it's not evidenced on MRI. But if you kept on digging, uh, the default that it was pain magnification and behavior and all the rest just went right out the window. So there's, uh, I, I, I could go on for hours on uh, this with case studies and scientific studies and whatnot, but uh, there's a start. The mentality of getting down to the bottom of the puzzle with assessment tests and uh, movements that can ease their pain to figure out what is causing their pain and what it's not, uh, that really helps patient to know, oh, this is what's causing my pain rather than being told we don't know. Maybe maybe you're magnifying your pain, maybe you're catastrophizing your pain. So that that really gives relief to patients and like real practical movement hacks as you put it to help them build build it back up basically. You mentioned the previous story on, on having to use video fluoroscopy. I wonder with that case, how would a clinician with their hands be able to know that let's say there is that joint instability or to know that they need further assessment like this to be able to quantify that instability in there. Okay, well I gave you a cervical advan- uh, example. Let's go to a lower example. So you're listening to the person tell their story. They may volunteer to you their pain patterns. Uh, But if they don't, I will ask them a specific question. Do you ever get a sharp pain in your low back when you roll over in bed? They say yes, bingo. They had a movement catch, if you will. Have you ever had a little shot of pain in your back as you step off a curb or as you bend forward to flush a toilet or as you do whatever? These are all uh, parts of the differential diagnosis of micro-movements of a joint. And then they might, I might, might say morning pain when you get out of bed. And they said, yeah, that, that's a lousy time. It uh, takes a while for me to get going. And then uh, the hypothesis there is that that micro movement or joint laxity, they've lost a bit of disc height. When you let a little air out of your car tire, the car tire bulges on the road and the car is now a bit sloppy. See, stiffness is what the body uses to control joint motion. Tire stiffness and turgor is what an automobile uses to keep control uh, on a road. Um, So uh, you've now got a hypothesis from listening to your patient. Now let's go to the clinic and test it. So you might do a prone shear instability test. Now you can identify with precision is L4 the pain trigger? Is L3 the pain trigger? Probe it up, probe it down, probe it from the side, keep playing jazz to figure out. And then let's say their pain is actually, they say, well, I've got right piriformis pain. Oh, now 
take, let's see, L4, and you're going to push L4 spinous process to the left. And they say, oh, there it is. That's my pain. That was a doorbell. You've now created the micro movement and it just zipped right into their piriformis. Do you think they have piriformis muscle pain and treating the piriformis is going to help? No, but that's where the nerve pain was referred to. So we know that you just identified with great precision now, uh, it's an L or a pain trigger. Now I'm going to go to uh, a test that we created. It is a frontal plane shear instability test. And you get the patient to relax. You hook their shoulder under your armpit and you reach around and grab their iliac crest, create, forming a hoop on the other side. So you post down with, their sh- with your shoulder, pull their hips across very, very gently, but they had to relax. That's the key to get the specificity of the test to work. And they'll say, yeah, there it is again. That's my pain. And then you'll say, I'm going to, you poke your fingers into their lateral obliques perhaps. And they might say, oh, and then you, you give them the frontal plane shear instability test again. They say, oh no, that didn't hurt. Pain's gone. And I usually say, did you just learn something now? And they said, yeah, I learned how to take that pain away. (laughs) Or what happens if they did the abdominal braces I just described and they said, oh no, that just made my pain worse. You're overbracing, perhaps, or the compressive cost of that bracing strategy, even though it took out the micro movement that you've just proven is their pain, they they don't have the tolerance yet. So then I might say, hmm, have you, did you remember hitchhiking? Say they were old enough to do that. Um, and I'll say, okay, externally at your thumbs, have your hands at your side, compress down using your pecs and your lats. Now repeat the frontal plane shear instability test. And they'll say, oh yeah, that didn't cause my pain. In fact, that took my pain away. So again, we're working on testing during the assessment. It's very specific strategies. Now, how did I know that? Because I knew a little bit about mechanics. I knew a little bit about clinical technique. Uh, I knew a little bit about coaching and empowering the individual to employ these things themselves wow. And they'll say, you're the first person who hasn't treated me like a five-year-old. You're the first person who gave me an, a strategy that I can now work through. So, you know, the way that you coach, the words that you choose, I know all this is, is so, so important. But anyway, there's a, there's a little bit of a, uh, a story now on, uh, on that. I, mm. I probably tell too many stories, but I, oh, hope I love hearing bing, the story. <laughs> this has been very interesting and insightful. So you really um, want to emphasize the importance of not defaulting to a non-specific label, but having a specific diagnosis on someone's pain. Now, would well, you hold hold on now? Yeah. I, I don't want to interrupt, but can I just go down that route for for just a moment? You know, let's say we 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 don't converge, because I don't nail everybody's pain with with great precision. So so let's give an example of that. It doesn't mean that we can't help, and it doesn't mean I default to a you know this amorphous non-specific thing that 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 leaves them helpless and clueless. Let's take uh, again a young woman like yourself. She comes in, she says, 
I really don't have back pain of any concern during the month, except for when my period starts. I really have trouble. I test her and I can't converge on a biomechanical pathway. It's not there. But I listen to her and she says, yeah, I, I, I carry a bit more water. I, I put a bit of weight. The rings on my fingers hurt a little bit, actually, at the very beginning of my period. So all I'm doing is pattern recognition, and I don't know cause and effect, but I've just identified an associate of the pain. So now I don't have a way to test that directly, so I refer. And my referral will be, I write a report back to the referring clinician. Let's assume it's her family doc. And I'll say, here's my hypothesis. I don't I haven't nailed with precision the pathway, but I have a feeling it's really internal swelling. Would you be willing to offer her four days of diuretics? And let's see what happens. Guess what happens the next month? Patient says, oh, my back pain never came this month. <laughs> so there would be a, a situation where, again, through differential diagnosis patterns, uh, we had an idea. I didn't have the capabilities to work with it any further. So I referred, say the person comes in and do a slump test. Every physical therapist learns the slump test. The slump test is a repeatable test. So you learn it, but it is not a specific test. But when you come into our system, we make it specific. We play jazz with it. We now I'm going to give you another case study. Here's a person they tell you that they can sit in a chair, no problem. But when they drive, they cannot stand the radiating pain down their leg. But you do a slump test, no symptoms. You just did a repeatable test. But now let's make it specific. What is going on with this woman driving? So we put her in a driver's, or sorry, just a sitting upright position, knees are flexed. And then we do the slump test. Think of the mechanics of the slump test. You pull the spinal cord and neural pathways cranially from the pelvis up, but from the pelvis on down, as you extend the legs, you pull the uh, nerve uh, mm-hmm. pathway from below. What's the net at the uh, pelvis or sacrum or low back? It is a bit of tension, but there's no movement. Movement is zero. But then we play jazz. Let's go into a driving position. Extend your right leg to press on the accelerator. Now look up. Oh, there's my pain. So we played jazz with the slump test. What did we just do? Instead of tensioning the cord, which the uh, slump test does, we now migrated the cord towards her foot. Mm -hmm. She didn't test for any discogenic pain when I examined her. It wasn't there. So something isn't making sense. And when something doesn't make sense, we don't default to, we keep chasing the pain. We keep chasing it. I said, I have to see your MRs. I have a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis that there, well, I didn't say this to her, but in my head, my hypothesis is there's something hanging up L5 on the right-hand side. I don't know what it is, but I know it's there. So now I go to the MRI, bingo, 
a Tarloff cyst sitting on the nerve root at the L5 right uh, exiting for Amen. Mm. She'd had radiology and one radiologist was very aware and commented on this as an incidental find, but no one ever tested it. So now we just found the, now what can I do about a Tarloff cyst, which is the mechanism of her torture? I don't have the skills. I refer out just like I referred with, with the woman and uh, the uh, diuretic case. I referred her now to uh, back to her clinician. And I said, here is the person that I know of who's very good with Tarloff cysts. Doesn't just drain them. They actually wrap them and they have, have quite a, a, a procedure. And, and I know because I've sent patients in the past that their success rate, it's, it's not a hundred percent. It's not zero, but it's the only chance that I know of. So there would be a, another incident of, uh, I mean, and again, I can give you cases of arachnoiditis. I can't deal with that, but I was the first one to show the person that they would write, you know, the little man that you have the patient draw while you get headaches, tingling pain, numbness, sharp pain on that pain expression chart. And when the uh, person is checking off headache, cervical pain, low back radiating pain, the guideline tells you that that is a bizarre pain presentation. That pain presentation represents inorganic pain, central sensitization. They're a nut case for their pain. Oh, I so disagree because that's, I've just given you a person with arachnoiditis, a very specific organic reason for their pain. And it came perfectly patterned after a little nerve root adhesion following post-surgery, you know, bad luck is, is what I can't do anything about that. Well, I, I think I can think of two cases of arachnoiditis where we tried a uh, very specific nerve lossing routines and we were able to get the nerve to break free. And the person said, you know, I had just a zinger go down my leg and then the pain went away after three months of nerve flossing. And that was it said and done away they went anyway. Oh, Tiffany, I could go on and on. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all these stories. And I'm really hearing the encouragement to um, whether it's fellow clinicians that are listening or students that um, don't don't give up on the assessment process on trying to find out what is the cause of pain. And if you need to go and learn more, gain more skills, go do it if you want to be a more efficient clinician. May I offer a yeah suggestion Please. at that point we uh for years i taught courses around the world and i would teach a course on assessment or on just plain spine mechanics and how this system works so that you could become better at recognizing features of differential diagnosis and then i gave courses on enhancing uh performance once the pain has been wind down in people is there's, there's real um, guidelines for all of this shall we say but i was always frustrated in that i couldn't take a patient from intake all the way through the process of understanding their mechanism winding it down and desensitize it adapting the tissues that needed to be adapted and then restoring them back and you can challenge my record with restoring athletic careers if you like but i don't know of anyone who's restored more uh 
back pained athletes to world record performance in professional sport and, and the Olympics, uh, uh, et cetera. But having said that, uh, that was my frustration. So we decided with COVID and whatnot to put together what we call a summit course. It starts out with 50 hours of online learning that we put together. Uh, it integrates uh, low back disorders, back mechanic, uh, ultimate back fitness and performance, all that material. And we try and synthesize it together with a 50 hours of background information. It's dense, but you get to go back and forth over things that you want to re-review. And then we converge somewhere in the world for three days, looking at different case studies, developing manuals how you assess um, uh, motions, postures, loads, how you interpret the uh, interview, and then how you can get down to specific cases, uh, tissues in, in specific cases. Not always, but quite often. Um, and the next one is in Montreal. Uh, if you went to our BackFit Pro website, for those who are interested in that kind of training to get to this level of precision uh that's what we ended up putting together and i'm i'm quite pleased with this so for the first time now people see it from beginning to end and they've got a skill set now on that note talking about um basically the mcgill method would you would you hope and foresee that this method being the primary approach that most physios and chiros take on or even being taught in schools i think elements of it will will make it but but l let me say this um what is the mcgill method now some people who will go see a video on youtube and they'll say well the mcgill method is doing a big which as you know that that's just silliness it starts out with this very in-depth assessment and then choosing the right tools to to reach the desired results to have that level of mastery the individual needs schooling in uh you know explain pain Lorimer Mosley and 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 Butler's work they need to know neurodynamics they need to know uh, simply mechanisms of of uh, spine function. They need to know how to coach, coaching skills. Uh, th they need many things. And the McGill method puts together, I think, I hope, all of these in a uh, consumable way. Will a school teach that? I don't know if they can do that in a year and a half curriculum or two year curriculum, whatever it is right now. So I think the way forward is to let the schools do what they do, give the background. And uh, it's really post-education that the master clinicians, if they so choose, will, will take this, this pathway and course. And, and I might say, you know, Tiffany, I've I've spent my career dedicated 100% on the low back. I couldn't imagine now having to gain expertise in the shoulder, the knee, <laughs> the neck. <laughs> I refer when a person comes in, oh, I've got neck and low back. As I say, good, here's who you need to see. <laughs> it's, it may not be me. So uh, 
this is the challenge. Uh, you, your curriculum is so full. Um, anyway, that that would be my answer uh, to those who really want to achieve mastery in and become a back pain specialist. And and I I'm, I'm going to I think we're coming close to the end, but I want to say for someone like you. What a wonderful career I've had. And as I mentioned from the outset, it's been an accidental career. I never anticipated this when I was a, a younger fella, but the people I've met uh, have been fabulous. These terrific clinicians around the world, the, the, the beers that we've had and the discussions that we've had have been fabulous. And, and people, you know, they'll listen to YouTube or, or uh, uh, social media and they think we're at war with one another. We're not. They're the most wonderful people to go and have a, a wonderful, insightful discussion with. And, and that's all part and part. Do I agree with them on certain things? No. Do they agree with me? No. We've all had different uh, perspectives. So for someone like yourself, keep learning all of these different things. And then if you decide uh, to become a master, I don't think you can be a master in the shoulder and the hip, uh, the foot, uh, gait patterns, um, uh, a physical therapist to a specific sport and a low back pain specialist. There's, there's, there's not, life isn't long enough to learn that level of mastery. But uh, anyway, uh, it, it's a wonderful life to help people and uh, also the, the 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 colleagues that you get to work with are nothing but uh, fantastic as well. And I know you were mentored by a, a fantastic colleague of mine uh, as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. One last question to end off this part. What do you what work do you see that needs to be done in order to cause more of a widespread, let's say, change in belief regarding non-specific low back pain in let's clinicians, researchers, and educators? Uh, I think the answer is education. And uh, with an open mind, uh, go and see what works. Uh, keep score. It's a very humbling experience. Uh, in fact, we're the only clinic that I know of in the world that uh, followed up with every patient we ever saw at the university. It's expensive. It, it costs money to do it. But, you know, I, I had research money at the university to do it. And we saw and measured what subcategories of back pain we do well with and what subcategories that we don't. And I learned when to refer, when to stay the course, Chances are they're going to get better, but uh, I I can think of a a, a pro golfer I had a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think I mentioned it earlier in in this, and uh, there was edema in the neural arch uh, on the right hand side. That's a bone bruise that hurts. How long does it take to wind down a bone bruise? It's not a week. Yeah. I said, don't swing a club for three months if you really want to get your uh, career back. Now I know there's pressures to play on the tour and, and all the rest of it, but I've done it long enough to know that he's probably in for three months of not swinging a club and then slowly, you know, develop the short game again. And I have a coach who I will, uh, I, I will refer him to who can get all the mobility back and knows how to in his body 
for PGA performance. But uh, anyway, it's it's education is is the answer, and then a dedication to keep working on this attainment of mastery. And by the way, am I there yet? No. Every patient I work with, I get a little bit better. And when I'm 95, Tiffany, I'll be a fabulous clinician. Wow. <laughs> if, if I can remember how to get to the clinic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very humbling to hear uh, a master like you saying, you know, I still have more to learn. But this is truly, you know, the things that gets me excited to ponder upon. And I hope uh, listeners here also very encouraged and inspired to um, learn more and continue to grow in your skills. It's truly been a pleasure to have Dr. Stuart McGill on to chat about non-specific versus specific low back pain, to hear the stories and to see that dedication to mastery. To our listeners, please look forward to part two of our interview with Dr. McGill. All the best. Thank you.